Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. We are back now. Um, I should be doing at least one show a week, if not more. Um, today, my guest is Aaron Hawkins, also known as Storm Clouds Gathering. We're going to be talking about a couple of hot-button issues that I have just kind of seen springing up again. Uh, we're going to be talking about North Korea and the subject of gay marriage. Uh, so if, if this is your first time listening to V Radio, please check out my website, v- or v-radio.org. Uh, there you will see archives of hundreds of hours of programming like this one, talk, you know, discussions about current events from an activist perspective, interviews with documentary filmmakers, scientists, other activists, uh, Occupy issues, uh, Zeitgeist Women issues, Venus Project issues, and uh, also just issues, issues about things that are going on in the world today. You'll also see my must-see TV list, which is a tab you can click on the top, which is a list of free documentaries that I strongly advise to all activists, regardless of what their background is in activism. Um, Furthermore, uh, if you like what you hear, please consider a donation. You can go to v-radio.org and click the Donate tab and contribute via PayPal. So once again, thank you, Aaron, for being on the show. Thanks for having me on, man. So uh, basically, Aaron, uh, it's kind of serendipitous because there were two things I wanted to discuss tonight on my kind of return radio show, one of which was the subject of Korea and the other was the subject of the you know, recent upsurge in the gay marriage debate. And you just actually just completed two videos about these topics. Why don't you go ahead and give the audience uh, the links to where they can find your videos? Well, probably the easiest way to do it would just be to go to stormcloudsgathering.com. Um, that actually sometimes has a delay. Like tonight, there's a delay on the, storm, the North Korea one. But if you go to um, youtube.com forward slash stormcloudsgathering, you can find all my videos there. It's, it's always updated. All right, excellent. Um, so one of the things that actually finally made me decide that I wanted to do about the sh- show about the North Korea thing is um, because of the, the place where I'm currently employed part-time, uh, they have a television that has Fox News up all the time. I recently heard a piece of rhetoric that I remember very clearly from the Iraq War invasion, uh, you know, basically pre-invasion, was... They have weapons of mass destruction, and they might provide these weapons of mass destruction to terrorists. And that, to me, set off a huge, like, red flag of, uh uh-oh, you know, like, okay, so we're really, you know, getting ready to move forward on this. And I chatted with you a little bit. You know, you put with that the the fact that they're, you know, using the V-2 bomber, that they pulled two V-2 bombers back into military service. Um, you know, basically out of, like, they always have them on standby, but we don't maintain them all the time. Um, you know, the, the fact that we're doing exercises, you know, with the B-2 bomber. And obviously the, the North Korean dictator's uh, recent kind of upsurgence, you know, in saber-rattling. Um, and that led me, you know, to just thinking, okay, well, is this, you know, this apparently is common for North Korea. They have a tendency to do this saber-rattling thing. You know, but as soon as I heard the words, he might, you know, he might have weapons of mass destruction he may uh, supply to terrorists, that's when I started worrying about, you know, the Fox News conservative spin zone preparing us for an inevitable invasion of North Korea. Um, so you've recently done a lot of research on this topic, so I wanted you to kind of share it with my audience. Uh, what do you think? Well, to be more specific about those drills, uh, they were running 
bombing drills with nuclear capable bombers. These are these B two bombers are, are known to be um, used for delivering the nukes. And the statements made by um, United States officials afterwards made it very clear that it was to send a message to North Korea. So it shouldn't be surprising that North Korea gets a bit upset about that. Um, you know what would United States do if, um, say, China was running bombing drills on the Mexican border? Same kind of same kind of thing. Um, but what's really not being talked about is is the underlying reason, and this is it goes back to 2006, which is the, the sanctions. And um, you know, it's, I think it's probably due to the fact that um, the Korean leadership has a sense of Pride. I don't know if this is a cultural thing or not, but they're not talking about what's going on with their people right now, but they have serious, serious economic problems because of these sanctions, and there's two-thirds of the population that's having a difficult time getting enough food. This is a real humanitarian crisis, and the United States has just been upping it um, consistently, ratcheting it down, making it harder and harder and harder for them to survive. Um, I think if they were more vulnerable and you know, expressed to the world, you know, we're having a real problem. We can't feed our people. Rather than going ballistic like they're doing, they'd probably get a better response. But I think this is, is again, what I, like I was saying, I think this comes down to a, a cultural um, pride issue. They don't want to admit that they're being um, really crushed. And they, they want to be strong. They want to stand up and, and show that they, they can do this. Um, so they're making threats and... Yes, the United States could technically be hit with a nuke if if they were actually able to hit them. I mean, according to most estimates, it's not even certain that they would actually be able to accurately hit a target like that. <clears throat> but in the end, in order to really understand what's going on there, you have to look at the position of North Korea, and it's right on the border with China. And it's it's you have South Korea, and then North Korea, and then China. Now, if if South if if North Korea is drawn into a war, which is what this looks like, it's attempting to do. It's it's a it looks very much like provoking them, provoking them, provoking them, getting trying to get them unstable, trying to get them to do something stupid. If just one bomb went off, if just one border incursion occurred, they would have the excuse to send the whole wrath of the U.S. military and the South Korean military on them. And, and the South Koreans are, are much more advanced militarily. So it wouldn't even be a fight. It would just be just a slaughter. Um, they would totally eradicate the North Korean um, regime. At that point, the United States would have control of the entire Korean peninsula. And they would be able to set up borders, uh, um, set up military bases all the way up to the, the, the Chinese border. And this would match with what we're seeing over the past several years um, where the United States has been encircling China. And China has made statements to this effect. They've, they've protested at a lot of the activities the United States has been involved in. They've been, you know, the United States just set up a, a new base in the north of, of Australia. And they've been setting up, you know, working, establishing military, renewed, deeper military relationships with um, a number of South Asian, East Asian countries and getting involved in a lot of the disputes in that region, which China interprets all of this as the United States is getting positioned to be in a, be able to do something to the United, to, to China. Um, 
historically, that's how countries operate when they're getting ready for war. Encirclement is a, is a real strategy. So, again, I, I've talked about this a lot in, in the past. Um, it, everything that I'm seeing, everything I'm seeing in geopolitics over the last five years or more, actually going all the way back to 2011, but in 2001, but accelerating now, it's getting harder and harder to deny, is, is we're looking at an acceleration towards a third world war. And you have to look, and really, in order to really understand how, how the United States operates, you really have to look at the way that they've gotten themselves into wars over the past century. Um, and that, that, on my documentary, that's what I'm, I've actually researched intensely every single war or every single major conflict um, between uh, World War One, actually actually before that, the Spanish, um, going back to the Spanish-American War, um, all the way to present, and just showing how they've used this pa- this pattern of provocation or false attacks in order to get themselves, um, get the American people behind them. I mean, this is what it's really about, is it, America could attack any country at once at any time, but in order to have the psychological support of the people, which is very important, they need to be attacked. So if whether it's Kim Jong-il or whether it's China or whether it's Iran, they need to be attacked, and they, that's why they're doing all this, this stuff. It's, it's, they're, they're looking for any way to get the people riled up enough to do something. And I think that's what it really comes down to. It really reminds me a lot, actually, of the some of the uh, saber-rattling and provocation that was involved with getting the Japanese to attack us in Pearl Harbor. Exactly. You know? yeah. And that's, I think it's important for people to put in context the kind of way that the United States goes about things when it comes to foreign policy, especially when things like the United Nations are involved. Uh, public appearance is so important you know, we need to appear like the good guys all the time so we can have our international coalitions that, of course, are essentially facilitating whatever the interests, you know, of the corporations that actually run our government want. You know, as Smedley Butler pointed out in War is a Racket, that that book was written before World War II. And, you know, it's just more of the same. Um, the only thing that I think in regards to the idea of World War III, it's, with nuclear weapons being in play, I'm not as worried about the quote-unquote nuclear arsenal of the North Koreans. I'm, you know, I think that's actually kind of a silly thing to be too concerned about. I mean, I'm concerned about it, but um, it's it's so ridiculously suicidal, as you pointed out in your video. You know, North Korea would be a smoldering pile of ash. There wouldn't be anything if they ever used a nuclear weapon. It, there's, it's beyond even the issue of mutually assured destruction, like it was you know, during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, it's it, it's more like, you know, uh, an ant that's, you know, threatening to, to bite you on your foot's, like, positioned right over it. You know, um, I think that uh, it, the reason that it's getting played up so much in our media, you know, especially when we use the rhetoric words, like the, the trigger words, like, you know, mass weapons of mass destruction could be sold to terrorists or given to terrorists, you know, is that they need us to be all worked up you know, up about the threat. You know, that's, that's I think, like, a large part of the reason why that's being brought up. You know, like, Iraq was this big threat. You know, we don't want to see the, the smoking gun that is a mushroom cloud and all that other kind of, you know, bullshit that they use to get us to consent to go to Iraq. And I think that um, 
it's really important that people take notes on how this kind this idea is being fed to them and learn from it. You know, it's really important that they, you know, because like people have asked me, you know, like why do I just, you know, because like you know they're like, why are you even watching Fox News? I was like, well, I'm not watching it for value. I watch it to decode it, essentially, kind of a practice in understanding how the uh, the spin, uh, you know, uh, system works. You know, I can almost generally kind of get an idea for what the elite want by watching Fox News and just watching how they try to convince you that it's a good idea. You can almost, you know, Fox News is such a, a blatantly obvious conservative, you know, neoconservative, more specifically, network that, you know, you can't, it's it's not even hidden anymore. It's so obvious, um, and I think that you know, in, in many ways, as ironic as it is, you're better off watching that and then you you know watching it from an enlightened point of view, you know, in a strong uh, understanding of propaganda and the lies of the media. You that you'll actually get a lot of valuable insights that way. Um, but as far as uh, you know, it's important to note that. I think that the biggest threat that we should be concerned about has more to do with the fact that, okay, so who does this benefit? Who does it benefit that we invade North Korea? It, who does it benefit that, you know, that we take them out? I mean, it's been within the crosshairs of the neoconservative movement ever since, you know, George Bush was suggesting that they were part of the axis of evil. Um, they're certainly a much easier uh, target than, say, Iran, you know, um, and that therefore i think that you know if they're thinking well let's knock down another thing that's in our way um i think you're definitely right about the encirclement of china um at this point though i mean i keep coming back to it again it's like how could we ever think that we're going to get into a conventional war with anyone with nuclear weapons on the table you know how can we ever think that anything like that is ever going to you know to come out ahead you know like we could ever do it i mean we went through this crap during the cold war when everybody was trying to strategize ways that we could defeat the Soviet Union, as soon as you throw nuclear weapons from an actual credible threat like China on the table, there is not a win scenario. There's just lesser degrees of losing. You know, like I said about uh, you know that that video game DefCon that I played that uh, you can get for Linux. You know, um, and it was described that way actually in one of the game reviews for DefCon was there are there is no winning. There are lesser degrees of losing. You win by you know having more of the small amount of people left on the, on the planet alive than the other person. You know, there's still massive amounts of destruction, no matter how you plot out a nuclear war. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, unless they think that uh, stealth technology is going to be the silver bullet, you know, unless they think that they've got some kind of uh, means of mass missile, you know, defense systems, maybe that they're not talking about or, uh, you know, I've heard rumors that Iraq might have been hit with a major um, uh, that Iraq might have been hit with a you know with a major electromagnetic pulse technology. I don't know if that's true. You know, um, if but those rumors make more sense to me than us ever gambling with the idea that we're going to get into a nuclear war with a major superpower and have any hope of succeeding. What are your thoughts on that? Well, um, one thing I was going to say just just to give people a point of reference when they're talking about the Pearl Harbor thing, just so that they know that you're not just making this stuff up. It, it helps a lot if you know the specific words to search for. Um, if you do a Google search for the eight points bulletin, you can actually find the, the um, declassified documents um, of the actual commands 
to intentionally provoke Japan into war. They, they gave out seven points, and the last point, action F, was the, the positioning of, of uh, American, uh, the American fleet in, at Pearl Harbor. <coughs> up, up to that, though, they had also done a whole bunch of things, including cutting off their oil, um, messing with their foreign relations, and a whole bunch of different things. So it's it's a very real thing, and there's also a, a BBC documentary on it that um, is called uh, "Sacrifice It at Pearl Harbor," which is worth watching as well. And you can watch that on YouTube. Um, you know, once you get into whether you're going to win or not, I think it's a question of what the goal is. Um, and this is this is I know this is, gets into where it starts sounding like conspiracy theory stuff, but. It's really not theory. There's a lot of the stuff that's very thoroughly documented. Like you look at, I've read, for instance, Brzezinski's book, um, The Grand Chessboard, and what he talks about. And this is this, Zygmunt Brzezinski is a very, very powerful guy. If you um, go, if you go to my my Facebook page, actually, um, I posted something there the other day, um, just within the last three posts or so, um, from the Council on Foreign Relations actual website, where it actually lists um, the. Uh, it's actually the Council on Foreign Relations uh, themselves. Um, it's on their own page, and it's basically the National Security Advisor um, of the United States. I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted by your typing. Oh, I'm sorry. My brain can't quite focus. Um, basically, if, if you go to that page... Um, and and I, it's posted there on my on my Facebook page, um, Facebook.com, sorry, forward slash Storm Clouds Gathering. Um, they basically make it very clear that Zygmunt Brzezinski is still in the chain of command, at the top of the chain of command um, in, with for determining security, um, national security policy. And in, in, in his book, he, he lays it out very clearly that the United States is supposed to build up the infrastructure and move things towards the... The, the the ultimate moment when the United States is to cease to be the global power and, and a global government will be set up. That's what he says. You know, you look at guys like um, David Rockefeller, he's made similar statements. You look at um, Paul Warburg, he's made same statements of that of the same kind. He made the statement in the um, in the actual um, Senate. <coughs> I can't give you the exact quote. I don't have it completely memorized, but it's, uh, basically, it's we will have one world government, one way or, or the other. Like, we will have one world government, like it or, or not. The question is whether it will be by uh, conquest or by consent. Something very close to that. Um, and this is a guy who was you know, talking to the Senate, and there's a whole bunch of these very, very, very powerful guys who've made the statement that they want. A one world government, and, and people to say, oh, oh, that's just conspiracy theory stuff. Well, I mean, the national, I mean, the, the Council on Foreign Relations has their membership has the most powerful people, and the most powerful corporations on the planet. I mean, if you go look at their their corporate membership list; it's the who's who of who runs things. I mean, it really is. And they've got Goldman Sachs, they've got Exxon, they've got Chevron, they've got Google, they've got. I mean, it's crazy when you actually go look at it. It's actually kind of scary. And you look at, you know, what they're calling for. And it gives you kind of an idea of where we're headed. And so, 
you have to start thinking, okay, if they want global government, how would they be able to accomplish that with all of the, the governments that are set up right now, with all the infrastructure that's designed for national government and all these things, and all of the psychological resistance that's in place? How would they do that? And when I realized what they were up to, it was about two years ago, and it was just this chilling realization. I looked at the pattern, I looked at the pattern, and I was just like, why would they do this? It doesn't make any sense. How do they do this? I, I, everything I see points to this, and I keep seeing it. It's just the same thing, the same pattern. And then it finally hit me. In order to set up a one-world government, they've got to wipe the slate clean. They've got to have a trauma so deep that everybody goes, anything but this, anything but this, we can't let this happen again. I mean, it's basically shock therapy. I mean, if you've ever seen that, that, that film, um, Shock Doc- Doctrine, Mm-hmm. Where it talks about how you you can actually get these massive changes by you know, creating a shock, a psychological shock, and then which which breaks the narrative. It breaks people's uh, concept of the way the world works, and then they're ready for something else because they've just seen their entire world destroyed. They've seen a whole bunch of things destroyed. It sounds crazy, but you're dealing with people who, in my opinion, there's clinical psychopaths. These people literally kill, kill 500,000 people without blinking an eye. You look at Madeleine Albright's statements about, you know, the, the sanctions in Iraq. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We killed 500,000 kids. It was worth it. It doesn't affect them emotionally. They just yeah, do. that video in particular is pretty damn chilling. <laughs> so please continue. <laughs> Once you see, I mean, like, for instance, Obama, I mean, he's so slick. I mean... This was so hard for people to, normal people to realize. <clears throat> That's why it's hard for them to, to come to terms with this, because they see this guy who he's just absolutely calm, he can smile, while at the same moment, he's, he's ordering people to be killed all over the planet. And he can just lie bold-faced to the camera. It doesn't phase him one bit. But that's the thing. There are, psychopathy is a real condition. It's a real medical condition, and it has, and and the actual symptoms of psychopathy match perfectly with what we know politicians are, which is basically, you know, superficial charm, ease of lying, and and being able to present themselves as being very friendly and and likable, yet having no remorse, no emotional connection to people, um, and therefore able to do things that normal people couldn't do. And it makes psycho- psychopaths are especially adept at political positions because of this fact. Because they they can hide their emotions. They can they can mimic the the facial expressions that come with for, that normal people produce with without actually having to feel those emotions themselves. Does that make sense? Sure. And that's I think especially though uh, people have a tendency to just be able to kind of turn off their understanding of the the gravity of what's happening to people if it still kind of keeps them in their bubble. Like, you know, like she says, it's worth, the, it's worth the, the, the cost, you know, she was willing, you know, I guarantee you when she said that she wasn't contemplating in her head, you know, the gravity of, you know, what it is that she was endorsing, you know, she certainly wouldn't have any kind of context to compare it to. She wasn't talking about her own kids. She wasn't talking about any children she knows. She wasn't talking about, you know, um, anybody, you know, and, and, you know, basically to her, those people don't exist. That's actually something I, I talked about during my Z-Day presentation recently, 
you know, um, was the way that numbers factor in, especially within a social structure when, you know, like Derek Jensen said, have you ever noticed how violence that is taken down the social scale is invisible? But but violence that is that is up the social the perceived social scale is this huge uproar and and oh my god it's terrible and you know like I posted on the board some numbers like one of them was for example was the number of people killed on 9/11 and another one was the number of people the more specifically the number of innocent civilians who've been killed in the Iraq War so far and without telling people what numbers they were looking at I asked everyone in the room so. All deaths are bad. It's bad when anybody dies, you know, um, particularly in a violent fashion. But of these two numbers, which one do you think is more deserving of uproar? So obviously they went with the, oh, geez, like over 100,000-something civilians that were killed in Iraq, not knowing what they were agreeing to. Of course, I was surrounded by activists, so I'm pretty sure that, you know, after I revealed it, of course they, they thought about it. But I was bringing up the fact that to the people of the United States, those 100-something thousand people um, were invisible. You know, they don't exist. You know, you don't see any special uh, reports on mainstream media about the innocent people that are being killed in Iraq or Afghanistan. They don't talk about that. You know, I took another number which was um, the comparison of the children that were killed on Sandy Hook and the children who have recently been killed by drones. One was like, you know, 22. The other was 127. You know, and again, um, you know, obviously you ask them the question, you don't attach who those people are, and they, of course, say, well, obviously 127 deaths is is worse than, than, than 22. But... That's not how the society in the United States views that. There are no episodes of, you know, the O'Reilly factor about the children killed by drones in Afghanistan and Iraq. But there was never-ending media exposure to the children killed at Sandy Hook. You know, why is it that 22 children killed in the United States in a classroom is worse than, in some fashion, um, 127 randomly, you know, children randomly killed by drones in the Middle East. How does that just not get factored in? Why doesn't it get, you know, uh, looked at that way? And it's because of the fact that people are basically conditioned, you know, that those sorts of things don't exist. And I think that in some cases, some of them even recognize subconsciously, especially among the elite, because you ask them these questions. And they all kind of recognize that this is the sacrifice that is made so that the United States can continue to consume roughly 40% of the world's resources while the rest of the world gets to fight over what's left. You know, that massive third world countries like Africa, for example, do not get to benefit from their diamonds. Um, You know, any country that tries to benefit from its oil on a national level, you know, is immediately targeted. So if we want to continue to have a society where there's gas-guzzling cars, you know, and uh, air conditioning and all of the things that we take for granted in the United States, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. You know, that brings you back to Smedley Butler's rants in War is a Racket, you know, where he talks about how, you know, he made the, uh, the world, you know, the world safe for United Fruit. 
in the South American countries that they wanted the land for so that they could get, you know, get their handle on the citrus, you know, so that people in the United States can have more citrus fruit, you know, that they wanted to make, you know, that they made uh, the world safe for certain oil interests within certain, you know, other countries. He lists them all off, the different things he was asked to do as a Marine. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest examples of people's ability to just completely ignore what's going on right in front of them. And that anybody who thinks that, that they're free but is incapable of understanding that, that this is happening, that this is the price of their freedom, you know, you want to wonder why they quote-unquote hate us, you know, that, you know, that takes me back all the way back to the beginning when I became an activist, when Ron Paul argued with Rudy Giuliani about, you know, uh, why they hate us. And, you know, of course, the neoconservatives need to spread this theory that supposedly they hate us because we have freedoms that they don't or that they find offensive. You know, I just don't see that, you know, and they, but that's what they wanted us to believe. They needed it to be about them hating us for apple pie and pornography and, you know, our women are not made to wear burkas. They needed to make it about that so that we could have some reason to be offended by what they were upset about and just kind of overlook the fact that we've been mass slaughtering people in their countries, you know, for years to take their stuff, you know, to take their resources. That's another one of the reasons, you know, and we'll, and we'll inevitably, I think, talk about this in the future. And I, because I've been studying up on my anarcho-capitalism recently, you know, when they point to the success that we have in this country due to our supposedly closest to free market economic system and that all of the marvels and the, you know, and the, you know, more specifically, the, the, the one major elephant in the room that they tend to ignore is that, you know, yeah, we have a mostly free market system in the United States or the closest to it. But that's not the reason or what you know, people like Mises would say is that you know you can always notice that the the standard of living is much higher in countries that have free markets, you know, and that the United States is proof positive because you know it has the closest to free markets, so therefore people's standard of living is higher. You know, they completely leave out that the real cause of that standard of living is imperialism. It is the willingness to do as Ayn Rand suggests and conquer countries that you feel are less productive with their resources than your own, whether it was killing off the Native Americans in the United States, killing off Arabs, both of which she mentioned, you know, that's the dark undertone behind this entire thing is that they have, a, you know, essentially the elite, the people who just suck up Ayn Rand left and right, that it is their right to go and take the resources from these countries that have, you know, no understanding of how to develop them, and that is the dark underside of this whole thing for me that is, the, you know, is what I hope that capitalists who occasionally listen to my radio show allow themselves to focus on. It's not the state that's keeping us back from this huge, you know, supposed paradise we're going to have, you know, and the success that we have right now is not being granted, you know, by some free market system. It's being granted very much with imperialism, and it always has been. Uh, when you watch the documentary, uh, An End to Poverty, I actually had a radio show a while ago where I got to interview the, the filmmaker of that documentary. But an end, the, um, the End of Poverty um, is a great documentary that details how throughout the centuries it is the imperialist nations that always 
have a higher standard of living, regardless of what their economic systems are. So any closing thoughts on this topic before we move on to the next one? Well, yeah, I'd heard this um, put to a crowd before. Would you press the button if it would restore justice, knowing that that would mean the end of your way of life? If there was a button to set set right in front of you in your in a room. I wonder how many people would actually press that button. If they would actually end all the murders and all of the tortures and all of the destruction that's happening, if it meant that they get reduced to essentially a third world living standard for for probably their entire lifetime until a paradigm shift. Um, something happens that basically takes us out of that mindset. I would think we would have to go completely out of our entire um, financial mindset in order to get past that. I think so. I mean, it's it's food, it's food for thought, even for people who consider themselves um, working for the truth, because the reality is, is that this is the underlying emotional, I don't know, position that. It, once a pro- the more when people who are less ethically solid when they when they come to realize okay America's headed for a collapse unless we basically completely restructure the entire global system um they're willing to to kill a lot of people to do that um I get the impression, just based on the way that Americans re- react emotionally, that a lot of people they close themselves off from that information because they don't want to be they don't want to look at that implication. They don't want to look at the reality that they might they might be living off of um, blood money. So, this is my thought on that. Sure. Sorry about that. Um, so. Moving on to the next topic, uh, the subject of gay marriage. Um, Recently, this matter has been brought up to the forefront again in a way that uh, some people think is a distraction because, you know, while that was being discussed, uh, I guess Obama passed or rather signed into law something that has to do with Monsanto. I haven't had a chance to really study the, the Monsanto bill. I've heard that you know, there's some hyperbole about it, like that it's not really as bad as people are letting it out to be, but I haven't had a chance to look into that. So, um, because this is a, because I try to have a certain amount of um, standards for myself, I'm pointing out to the audience that I have not had a chance to investigate the Monsanto bill very closely yet, so I won't really comment too much on it. But what I will say is that on the subject of gay marriage, uh, you did a pretty good uh, presentation about that recently in your own video. And what I've kind of come to realize as I I was thinking about this recently, particularly for the constitutionalists out there who, and this is obviously just kind of an issue about the United States and their approach to it, Um, and that is that uh, if the First Amendment of the United States Constitution directly states, and it does, that Congress is to make no law respecting the establishment of a religion then effectively, if what Christians and generally, you know, uh, pro or I'm sorry, anti-gay marriage people argue is that, you know, the marriage is a religious institution and should be defined by their religions. Effectively, that means that all laws 
governing the institution of marriage at all are unconstitutional. Every last one of them is unconstitutional because Congress cannot make laws respecting the institution of any religion, period. Can't happen. Well, that's where where there's a lot of confusion because, I mean, for instance, I got married in France, and I didn't get married in a church. In fact, you can get married in a church later if you want, but everybody gets married at the town hall in France. That's just how it works. Right. That's just the government is the arbitrator of marriage in France, and then if you want to go have a ceremony, you can, but it means nothing. It has absolutely zero legal backing. In the United States, it's kind of a little bit more blurry because you go have a ceremony, but the reality is that it has to still be done by a so-called minister of some sort. I mean, you can buy your your certificate online. I did. I I married my brother, basically. I I, I could perform the marriage for my brother and his wife, (laughs) and that was pretty funny. Um, But it's actually the marriage certificate that you have to go get from the state that actually makes you married. It's not the, not the marriage ceremony. They don't you know, record it. There's no record of the ceremony, except you actually have to you know, fill out the paperwork and prove that you actually are married. So it, it's it's a state institution. It's been the state institution for a long time. The, the reality is is that the, the church used to be the state. The church used to be the a governing power, power. So they were what arbitrated it, but they also arbitrated a whole bunch of other things. So, I mean, people people look at it like, oh, it's a church institution. Well, yeah, the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church would you know, also burn you alive if you had the wrong book. So, I mean, what are we going to – what's our point of reference here? Right, and that's, I think that's really important. It's, okay, so if they wanted to be a religious institution so much, then what should happen instead is, all right, fine, you're right. Marriage is a religious institution, and if that's the case – then it cannot be in any way defined by the law. Okay, if we need to then, what should happen is everyone, regardless of what kind of couple they're part of, everyone should get civil unions if that's what they want. If they want state-enforced rights and privileges of what is currently under the understanding to be the institution of marriage, then civil unions should be a separate issue. You know, get the word marriage out of it, and then let anybody who wants to engage in a civil union engage in a civil union. Even Ron Paul, who's a total Christian, made it very clear that anybody should be allowed to engage in any contract that they want to engage in and call it whatever they want. Okay? You know, and I think that's really what this amounts to, is that there's the state definition of marriage, and then there's the religious definition of marriage. And I think that at the very bottom of all of this, you would think that that would be enough to just defeat the issue, but it's not. And unfortunately, the reason why is that there is a certain theocratic streak, more specifically to the Christian right, but they're not alone, you know, in this argument. They, it's not enough for them, you know, that they want to have, like, you know, a certain amount of control over the institution of marriage. They also want to be in a position where they can hopefully use the government to enforce the rules of their religion. Because well, here's, here's the thing that's really important to point out really early on on this. is It's not even consistent with the Bible to say what they're saying. I mean, they're taking this a couple of statements out of context from Leviticus where it says, you know, it's an abomination, man sleeping with men or women sleeping with women. 
It's it's in the same book that tells them not to eat shellfish or to wear clothing of mixed fibers, and 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 they basically give themselves a, a get out of jail ticket for all of that, saying that you know Jesus brought the new covenant and this is a different you know we're in this new era of grace or whatever. Yeah, fine. Well, you need to be consistent. <laughs> if, if if all that stuff was nullified for you on all the things that affect your life, then you really don't have any rights to just pick and choose and just pick one of those things out. Um, of course, you know they point to some of the things that Paul stated in, in I don't remember exactly which book, but I think it was Romans. But Paul Paul was a murderer. He was this guy who had been hunting down Christians, and he supposedly had this epiphany. I mean, I wouldn't have I, I wouldn't have trusted him to babysit my kid, much less you know, tell me about God. I mean, I've had epiphanies. I mean, I've I've had some amazing experiences. I've seen God or whatever you want to call it. If I write a, a book about it, does that mean that you should take every single thing I say and, and act like I could never be faulted? I mean, this is a guy who also said that women shouldn't speak and, and that you know the women should have no authority and all these things. And yet we just ignore all that because you know now we've moved on as a society. A lot of it just comes down to people think it's icky, and you know, yeah. You know, if you think about it too much, maybe it will gross you out. Okay? Maybe you should just not think about it too much. But the reality is, biblically, you don't really have a lot of room to stand. I mean, Paul never met Jesus. He he wasn't even alive at the same time. So he's not a, he's not a person who has a point of reference. Look at Jesus' life. Jesus Jesus accepted everybody. He hung out with the prostitutes. He hung out with the tax collectors. He hung out with everybody that everybody in society thought was untouchable. And he preferred to hang out with those people than the religious people. That's a really strong message. And guess who it was that killed him? The religious establishment. They didn't like what he was saying. They didn't like his refusal to go along, to toe the line, to bow to the the powers that be, the religious powers that be. So, I mean, people are really completely missing the entire message of Jesus, and they're contradicting themselves and, and, and talking out of both ends of their mouth on the Old Testament. For so sure. That's, this is a point, an important point to make because people say that it's, you know, they're using their, their religion. Well, they're not, they're not even really, they're not even being consistent about their religion. It, it's, that's just, that's just the, the simple truth. I mean, Jesus wouldn't have approved of what they're doing. I mean, regardless of whether Jesus was God or not, I mean, Jesus, as he's described, was a very forgiving, opening, accepting individual. Right. He would have not been sitting there going, no gay marriages. No way he would have been involved in that kind of thing. He would have been condemning the Christian church. That is actually, you know, a very solid point, and it kind of points to the reason why uh, there's a lot of controversy over this issue, specifically in the interpretation of the Christian Bible, what would have ever empowered Paul to contradict Jesus? You know, yeah. That, you know, that, that's, okay, you're talking about Jesus here. You would think he'd be kind of the final word, you know, but yet Paul's supposed word in different places conveniently contradicts the things that Jesus said or goes in a direction that Jesus, as you pointed out, the character, whether you believe he's real or not, it's not consistent for the character. You know, uh, and I think that overall, 
um, what my appeal to the Christian right about this really is going to be, and of course, I mean, I doubt I'm going to be listened to because of that very same underlying hypocrisy that is actually, in my view, motivated by a theocratic interest in hopefully preventing people from doing things that they feel are sin according to their God. But that is that if you believe in the Constitution and you believe that, you know, Congress is to make no laws respecting the establishment of a religion, then any laws about marriage are unconstitutional by their definition, if you believe marriage is a religious institution. Now, a lot of these people also like to try, you know, what you're going to end up getting, especially from the, the Constitution Party types, is they're going to tell you things like, no, 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 you see, the Constitution was actually written to facilitate the Christian religion, and, you know, therefore, anything we say, you know, that, that's biblical is automatically also constitutional. And the thing that I find odd about that, I mean, we can get into arguments about what Madison said or what Jefferson said, is that if the United States was meant to be a theocratic nation, why is it that religion is only mentioned twice, and the second time that it's mentioned, it's to make it absolutely clear that there is to be no religious test for anyone who is going to serve in government. If religion was so critical, if we were to be a theocratic nation, you know, on biblical principles, then you would think that there would absolutely be a religious test to serve in Congress, the Senate, or the presidency. But in point of fact, the Constitution very clearly forbids any such test. In other words, you are not allowed to confirm whether or not somebody is, you know, of the, with the religion, you know, that you are or anyone else's for that matter. It literally is unconstitutional. It's not, you know, the First Amendment might need to be reworded to be more clear. Like, they can make that argument. But the fact that the only other place in the entire Constitution that religion is mentioned at all is in the context that we're not allowed to have tests for people who serve in government as to what religion they are pretty much makes the argument for me. If they wanted the country to be a theocratic nation, it would have been extremely easy to make that clear. But they didn't. And I honestly feel that considering how long they spent on that document, if that was their intention, then they would have spelled it out. But they didn't. Well, it's very clear that they weren't. I mean, if you look at quotes by people like James Madison, I mean, James Madison said, Religious bondage shackles and debilitates the mind and unfits it for no, every noble enterprise. I mean, can't get much more um, harsh than that. If you do a search for founding fathers were not Christian, you can find a whole list of quotes. You know, John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John, um, let's see, James, did I say James Madison yet? Or did I say, well, I'll just go through the list here. Thomas, Thomas Jefferson Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, Abraham Lincoln, John Adams, Thomas Paine, George Washington. I mean, full of anti-religious statements that they've made. They were very clearly against the institutions of religion. I mean, you can get into what they were really believing, and then you get into all sorts of other weird stuff, but they weren't religious. They didn't like religion. They were against it. Um, for instance, the second one by James Madison, ecclesiastical establishments tend to great ignorance and corruption all of which facilitate, facilitate execution of mischievous projects. Um, John, John Adams, let's see. Um, I almost shudder at the thought um, of, of alluding to the most fatal example of the abuses 
of grief which the history of mankind has preserved, the cross. Consider what calamities that engine of grief has produced. And that was in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. Um, it just goes on and on. There's tons and tons of these things. They, they really were not religious men at all. For sure. And that's, I mean, of course, they'll just quote stuff back to you. That's why I generally just try to avoid that altogether. Oh, it's interesting, actually, to listen to uh, the Supreme Court deliberate about how they analyze the Constitution. Is They literally have to go through things that are not in the Constitution. They go through things that are not in the, the Federalist Papers or in the Declaration. They have to, like, you know, I remember listening, for example, to part of the argument about the D.C. gun ban. Um, and they were talking about, like, letters that, you know, different founding fathers wrote to each other and stuff like that when they're bringing it up. This is all the stuff that we have to go through when we're supposedly interpreting the Constitution. And that's why I generally kind of look at it from the perspective that I think that particularly people who are of faith, uh, especially if they have questions about that faith, have a tendency to need things to kind of help them keep that faith. And if they can get the state to back up their faith, you know, then, then they can hold on to their religion better. You know, I think that's really what this is about. Um, you know, that excellent uh, atheist, you know, video series that I shared with you. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to watch it or not, but the kid is a former Christian, and he reasons things out very well, and he takes things from a very gentle perspective. He's very empathetic towards Christians in particular because he was one for years. He doesn't hate them. He just kind of rose out of that line of thinking. And, you know, he points out that, you know, at some point that you tend to go to church a lot because then you're surrounded by other people who believe the way, the same way you do, which essentially in turn gives you security about your beliefs. And I think that is, at the end of the day, the threat that they do not want to admit to. You know, you ask them the obvious libertarian question, why is it that you feel threatened by what me and my partner do in the privacy of our own homes, you know, between consenting adults. Why does that threaten you? And the answer as to why it is a threat is because, like any other religious individual, these people have questions about their faith, and when they see other people are enjoying their lives in a way that they consider to be contradictory to what their faith says is required for you to be in the grace of God and therefore to be prosperous and all the other things they connect to their faith, then it is required for them to, you know, to basically to call anybody out who seems to be enjoying life absent their religion. You know, what you do you think? Think it's, it, you don't think it's more related to insecurity about their own sexuality? I mean, it's, Oh, no, that's definitely a part, for sure. I, 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 mean, I remember when I was, like, 14 being a little bit homophobic. I mean, but, you know... As you become more mature and you get more solid in who you are, then that kind of just falls away if you get to that point. But I think a lot of people, it just still stays in the poo-poo phase. And everything's just kind of like, ew. And, you know, they, they don't want to be viewed as being open to it because then that makes it look like they might be kind of not quite as strong in faith and strong in, um, internally. I mean, a lot, a lot of things I see, this is kind of, Controversial to say if any people are listening are Christian, but the reality is, is it's a, it, that formula of belief where you say that a person has to believe in order to be saved. 
it's a really dangerous thing because once you get a person to accept that they have to believe something, whether it makes any sense or not, then they've basically trained themselves to rewrite, reroute their brain around an illogical uh, formula. Mm-hmm. You know, if if a formula doesn't make sense, but you make it make sense, so that it so that you can you say it, you make it you make it make sense, then you've basically broken your logical faculties, and that makes it easy to convince a person of a whole bunch of other things and just believe because you need to believe. You can basically that 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 ability to just turn off logical and critical thinking is a is a learned ability. I think that's why governments really like religion so much because it it really facilitates control it makes it easy to to control a population when when they have that trained ability to just turn off their mind yeah that makes perfect sense and i think that um there's a lot of different institutions that i am realizing in my studies of how you prevent people from thinking uh bring about that same line you know that same essentially that same kind of tool uh, anarcho-socialist Patty Jo Shannon from the film uh, Capitalism and Other Kid Stuff brought up religion as one of those methods of division that leads to superior control. He brought up gender. He talked about racism. You know, they, all of these things essentially have a way in which they benefit an elite that is trying to control a large number of people by keeping them all divided and fighting one another. You know, um, they're all things that essentially allow people to look for other enemies that are not related to the true enemy, essentially, the true force that is controlling you. If you're fighting with people over your religious beliefs, then you're not paying attention to what happens next. I mean, that's essentially the theme of what these people are suggesting when they point out that while we're discussing gay marriage and a gay marriage amendment or whatever Obama was doing along that line, you know, that if it's true that Obama is then therefore able to sign into law a bill that protects Monsanto from any form of legal prosecution, you know, based on any health or damage that their GMOs might bring to the table. That's a perfect example of it, because now we're going to have people paying attention to their religion being challenged, to their sexual rights being challenged, you know, um, rather than considering ourselves with essentially, you know, more fascist legislation to protect corporations who are doing things that in the end will endanger the entire planet. And people say that, and I agree with that. I have to have to ask the question: Whose fault is that? It's certainly not the fault of the people who just want to have equal rights. I mean, people make the statement, "Oh, you know, these people." Come on, the only people who are really making this into an issue are the people who are trying to say that one group has one set of rights and the other group has a different set of rights. And it's not the gays; they're not the ones who are doing that. They're not trying to impose anything on the on the Christians. They're not trying to say that they have to do something new. They're just saying they want to have the same rights. Um, it, it, it's a real stretch to try to say that you're not responsible for that. And then that's that's the reason I got into that. Because I see this as, as, as a deep philosophical problem. Mm-hmm. The, Americans talk about freedom all the time, but freedom really only applies to them. They don't, they, they don't like freedom. They like to be free themselves. They will be able to do what they want to do. But they don't really understand what makes that possible in a society where people don't agree on what needs to be done. In a society where everybody doesn't agree, you have to learn to let people do stuff that you don't agree with. (laughs) If you want to be free. Because otherwise, eventually, the other side gets control, 
And if you set the precedent for ruling their lives, then how are they going to deal with things? And this is the thing I threw at people over and over in the Facebook, in my Facebook pages, because I was just basically saying, listen, the country is becoming less and less Christian. This is a standard trend. We're we're moving away from being a religious society. It's going to become a secular society within the next several generations. This is just reality. It's moving faster and faster with the internet. It's not going to slow down. It's only going to accelerate. What happens when those guys are running things? You know, when it's the next generation, two generations down, who are running everything, regardless of whether the United States has collapsed and we've restructured everything, when they are in power, <coughs> when they're in power, and they look at Christianity and all the things that it caused, you know, what if one of those guys gets the bright idea just to make Christianity illegal or to make it illegal to teach your kids Christianity? I know a lot of people who would, who, who think that that's something that should happen, and. They're not going to like that. They're going to say, oh, our rights, oh, our beliefs, oh, uh, yeah. Well, if you want people to respect your rights when that com- time comes, then you've got to be consistent now. You've really got to be standing for the principle. Because if you don't, what room do you have to talk when it comes around to you? You know, if, if, if there is no equal protection under the law, if there is no, if I'm not, in, if I'm not in, for, in, impeding on someone else's rights, then I should be able to do what I want. And arguably, when you're talking about raising a kid, I mean, an atheist can make a much better, much stronger statement about you impeding on someone's rights, to be honest. Because they can say, well, that kid doesn't have a choice. Their their mind is being imprinted. Um, it, it, they can make a very, very strong and logical argument to completely make it illegal to take your kids to church. And if they make, make up 80% of the population and they're willing to use force, they can make you do it. It's happened before in history. I think it's right. I don't think it's right. I don't want that to happen to anybody. I don't want people to be controlled by the barrel of a gun. But that's what the Christians are asking to do. That they're trying to use the state to impose impose their own prejudices. It's, it's it's the exact same thing as we saw with you know interracial marriages. It's amazing that they can't see just how they're taking their prejudices and and trying to project them outward. And then history goes by, and you know twenty thirty years later they look like idiots. You know no one would would publicly admit that they were in the crowd fighting you know, the integration of, of racial integration in the schools but that's, that's, that's the same kind of thing that's going to, be, it's going to happen in 20 years with, with gay marriage people are going to look back on it and they're going to be ashamed right there's a lot of memes on Facebook about that where they bring up like you know racial uh, division marriage issues and things like that and you know like how you know like they quote like how long ago it was that uh, black people and white people being married was illegal or considered to be a you know a, an abomination or whatever, um, and they're right you know they're absolutely right I think though that um, overall you know and you're starting to see somewhat of a movement involved with this for example like I know there's a Christian group that literally goes out to like gay rallies and stuff and apologizes on the behalf of the of their religion for the way that they're being you know that the way that they're treating gay people like they still don't agree with what gay people are doing but they also acknowledge that it's not in any way Jesus or Christ like to be spewing hatred at everybody you know um and that I think is a is a positive move in the right direction for Christians as far as, like, you know, making themselves a positive force for social change in the world. Um, and so, 
that's essentially, you know, um, where I'm hoping that will evolve. It's interesting also to see, I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but the way the Catholic Church is struggling to redefine itself as religion is faltering. Um, like, they're trying to figure out new ways to, to sell themselves. I remember making this comment recently because somebody posted an article about how the Catholic Church is trying to rebrand itself. I posted a link to that part of the film Dogma, where uh, a cardinal was presenting the buddy Jesus, which was an attempt to rebrand Jesus to make it more interesting to the younger generation. Did you ever see Dogma? I think I saw part of it. Was that the one with J. Bob and... Well, it's, yeah, it's a Jay and Silent Bob film, and it had I, George Carlin in it, and he was the cardinal, quite ironically. George, I, I, I don't think I got through it. Like some some movies, I just get like about 30% in it, and I'm, I can well, check out. Right. What I found totally interesting about it was that essentially everything that, you know, that they put in Dogma um, uh, was, you know, essentially like a prediction almost as to exactly what the Catholic Church would do eventually. Um, and many other religions are doing the same thing. Like there's a Catholic Church that moved into my community here and they're spreading flyers everywhere, you know, and it's just, I mean, it's almost like a political campaign to get anybody to be interested enough to show up. You know, uh, um, the same thing uh, basically, um, you know, happens in pretty much all religious institutions in the area. You know, you can't continue to essentially tell everybody that they need to live their lives the way you want or you're going to threaten them with some big burning hell and expect that to work. You know, the Catholic Church realized that, for example, when they came to proselytize to the Celts. Um, the Celtic people in Ireland, um, England and Scotland and Wales, for example, there's a reason there's all these Catholic saints that are named for Celtic gods is because they were trying to convert Celts. And, you know, Celts' ideas of um, how to worship, you know, is you have these big parties you know, where you all get together and you have fun and, you know, Christian worship at the time was kind of boring. So they basically had to um, kind of adopt a bunch of Celtic deities and traditions like, you know, uh, the different holidays, for example, that you see now to make Christianity more interesting because otherwise nobody was going to join. It's You know, you can't just say, well, I've got this book that I claim was written by X people and expect everybody to go along with that just because you said so. The threat of fire and brimstone only takes you so far. You know, um, so I guess uh, it'll be interesting to see what efforts are made in this new rebranding of various churches as they're struggling to, to keep their hold on things. Um, because as many people are pointing out, the Internet is killing religion. Um, I mean, it's definitely responsible for my full, you know, look into, you know, into things to where I'm an agnostic, heavily leaning atheist, um, you know, and it's religion. And I think also in some ways the Republican Party is also talking about rebranding itself and trying to come up with new ways of doing things. The Republican Party is now suddenly bending on the gay marriage issue, which has been its big, you know, thing because they're realizing that their allies in the Christian coalition are not really getting them elected anymore. You know, if they don't find some way to appeal to the other side, then they're going to die. 
you know, so their answer basically is you're watching these strange transformations where, you know, there are so many rampant Republicans who, like, if you asked them six years ago, four years ago, even one year ago, their position of gay marriage, and now it's suddenly changing because they realize that that issue is losing them a lot of votes. You know, they're doing the same thing with immigration reform. Suddenly you're getting all these Republicans that are interested in, you know, a bunch of foreign Mexicans being nationalized in our country. You know, um, it's interesting. You know, and I, I think it'll be interesting to watch the way these rhetorics develop because especially this, and this is, I think, the, the highest, most underlying issue underneath all of this is that if you're in a depressed economy where people cannot find jobs, the rhetoric that everybody out there who's on welfare wants to be starts to really hurt you because you can't continue to say that to people who are on welfare who don't want to be and expect them to vote for you. You know, you, you can't expect them to, uh, you know, vote for you if part of your platform is, well, let's cut all entitlements, let's cut welfare, let's cut food stamps. You can't say to a group of people who are in a destroyed economy that that's what you're going to do and expect to get any support. It's kind of basic, you know, logic. So, you know, I say that to people also because I know it's also somewhat of a tangent. We're getting near the end of the show. But um, analyze the rhetoric that's being pushed at you. Use your critical and analytical thinking skills and analyze these changes because they're happening for a reason there is somebody at the top of all of this who wants to manipulate your strings like a puppet, and they're finding these hot-button issues to distract you. Because you're not seeing any Republicans, for example, you know, stepping out and saying, well, we need to be sure we have welfare. <laughs> they're, they're going after the other issues, the distraction issues, the ones that they don't, you know, that they, that we, you know, they managed to get us talking about, like gay marriage and immigration. They're willing to talk about those things. But they're not willing to talk about the things that actually matter that benefit their corporate masters at the end of the day. Any final comments? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a tough, it's a tough um, principle when you're dealing with wedge issues because you can't ignore them. I mean, you, on one hand, you don't want to spend a lot of energy going into it over and over and over and over again, but at the same time, we have to learn how to talk to each other as humans. And that it's... It, it may it may not be that people are going to ever agree on everything, but to learn to where the boundaries of, of rational or sane action is, I mean, to, to to understand what you may have your opinions, you may think something is icky, you may not like what a person is doing in their home, whether it's smoking pot or having sex with another man, but you don't really have a right to regulate that. That's not your. You know, you, you, when you try to create the right to do that, you're crying, You're basically trumping everything that makes rights possible. You basically you're just saying, I can do whatever I want. Is essentially as long as it fits my whims. Um, and so, from that sense, I think we have to be willing to to to, to look at some of these wedge issues, but to bring it back to the principle. Not not to make it just like the slink fest against religion. I don't think that's the issue. It's, I think the real issue is that people don't understand rights. They don't understand the boundaries of their beliefs. They don't understand that regardless of what they think, they have to let other people think something different. They have to let other people live something different if they don't agree. Um, otherwise, what happens? I mean, you create if you create a theocracy. Well, great. I mean, you you, you eliminate the limit the, the boundary between church and state. Okay. Well. 
Um, let's just let's say immigration trends in Texas continued and Texas becomes predominantly Catholic and they just decide to say, well, Texas is a Catholic state, so everybody has to go to Catholic school. We're going to teach Catholicism in school. We're going to, all churches must become Catholic. They're all going to have mass and da da da, da and there will be no other religions. What's to stop them? I mean, when you open up that doorway, when you have the mixture between a so-called democracy, which is not, obviously, but this pseudo-democracy where you can elect people, you can elect your, your, your petty tyrant to, to rule your life, and that petty tyrant is, you know, he can go as far as the people let him, and the people will say, well, let's just take away all this group's people's rights. Eventually, to come back around Eventually, you will pay the price if you take away other people's rights. And that's the important principle that people need to realize, is that you can't have rights, you can't have a free society unless you give that free society to other people. I agree, absolutely. Well, it's been great having you on again, Aaron. I hope that uh, the people listening have enjoyed this broadcast. I think we had another good constructive conversation. Um, We are due for another fireside chat um, the topic of anarcho-capitalism tomorrow night, isn't that correct? Yes, yes. Now, where can people uh, basically get back to listening to these fireside chats? Because I think they're an excellent way for people of different activist groups to kind of share their thoughts. Well, what I've been doing, it's kind of been in flux. So um, I've been posting it right before I go live onto naturalrightsfoundation.org on the live button. Or Storm Clouds Gathering Live. It's the same button. Um, there's a live button on, on the site. Uh, but if you're subscribed to my channel, then it, it'll actually um, show up in your feed. It's a little bit tricky. That's the reason it's kind of um, it's kind of hard. That's the reason I put the Natural Rights Foundation thing is because you know it, your people's feed it can have a lot of different stuff. So the other the other option is on um, Facebook. I post it right before we go live. So post a link there. Um, I try to post it as many places as possible because I understand that um, with the way that they filter content nowadays, you don't necessarily see everything that you post. Um, they, you know, the websites decide what you get to see or not. So, um, so if in doubt, you know, follow Neil, follow me on Facebook, um, facebook.com forward slash Storm Clouds Gathering, or on Twitter, um, um, Collapse Updates. <coughs> Mostly Facebook, though. That's where I really focus my attention. Right. And, uh, we always post I, these things in the Fans of E Radio Facebook group, too, folks. Um, and you can join that. There's a link to it on my website. So, you know, he always posts his new content there. So consider joining it because I've got thousands of people who listen to this show, but only like 600 people subscribe to that Facebook. Continue, Aaron. Well, yeah, and that's, that's the thing. It's like, what social media is about is really, at least to me, is about catching stuff that you miss. And because you might be on YouTube once a week and you don't notice something new has come out. I mean, I one, I'm, believe it or not, I'm on YouTube very little except when I'm doing research and I'm targeted, you know, targeted searching for stuff. I don't sit there and just watch my feed for the next videos. So I, I watch Facebook to see what's important to the people who I follow, and and that's a way to keep up with stuff and. Um, yeah, in general, that's a good, a good way to to know what we're we're posting. Also, Storm Clouds Gathering, I, I post my recent stuff, and the recorded version will always end up being you know, posted on, on StormCloudsGathering.com 
in, uh, delayed. Um, but yeah, we've been we've been basically just working through the, the format in the beginning. I mean, we went through a couple of really chaotic moments. With, I don't know if you I don't know if your fans were there when we had that little explosion with that one um, in our capitals, but <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, this time it'll be a well. We're gearing it towards just asking questions, not not statements, and we're not bringing that particular guy on anymore. So, um, well, I think it's it's also just saying what I was like about this particular broadcast is that we're not going to be getting into uh, conversations about system versus system or proposal versus proposal. I mean, the anarcho capitalists are going to be in a position where they're answering questions for once. Because I think that that was another thing. Like, if you remember during our last conversation about these kinds of things, is that it was really important to them that they knew what my uh, su- suggested system was, even though that wasn't in any way relevant to what I was talking about at the moment. And the reason why is so that if I start making points, then they can go, well, your system sucks too, or you, they can try to distract away from the point. I'm like, you know, I could be advocating a total statist fascism that's not in any way relevant to my conversation with you about what's wrong about what you're talking about. You know what I'm saying? Sorry, I had my mute button. Yeah, it's. It, it, I don't want to get into like making people, them feel like that they're going to be attacked or anything like that. But oh, it, no, it, not it, 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 But it's a general, it's a general tendency for people when they don't, when their belief system is under question, and this is. I think this is universal for any belief system when a person becomes emotionally attached to it. I think it can happen with any any belief system, really, literally. I mean, I've seen it. I've, you know, I've met zeitgeist people who were like that. I, I see a lot less of it now. Now that the, it seems like in the last few years, the, the movement's matured a lot. Um, I remember when people first came off that film. I remember that was what scared me about the zeitgeist movement initially because I, I, there were these guys that just really like they came out it and it just seemed like they were in the, this religion. And and then later I realized, okay, well, that's not what the movement's about. You guys are trying to talk those guys out of that. But there's some groups that don't. That's the thing. It's like there's a difficulty is when a person is really coming from an ideology that that reinforces um, that there's no other way to look at things. <clears throat> then it becomes dangerous because people um, they become very emotionally attached to their their ideological identity. And then once you start to to, to do that by posing some very really difficult questions, then then they feel like their their own personal identity is being attacked and they, they flip out. Um, and I don't I don't want it to come to that. And I, this guy that I'm bringing on, um, he's not like that. And I, I, there may be another guy. It's, it's uncertain whether we can get how many we can get, but at least the first guy, um, I've, I've already talked to him, and he's he's he doesn't he seems like he's got he's wired right. And I'd like to get Ellery on too, because Ellery's um, really good at talking about these things without getting defensive. And he's, he's actually grown to a point where he's not really strictly an anarcho-capitalist. But, but man, that's a topic. Oh boy. <laughs> For sure. It, the way I'm going to be, just so people know, this 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 next show is going to be geared towards. Well, I'm going to announce it in the beginning. And basically, I'm going to be. Opening this up so that we're gonna, anybody who's in the comments can answer the questions of if they have a better answer than the person who's who's there, and anybody who wants to um, post a video response will have an entire week. They'll have until next Tuesday 
um, to post a video response. I'll leave it open. Um, the condition is that they can't post a video response of a video that they made previously. It has to be dated after the moment that I open it up for video responses. Does that make sense? So I don't want people just basically throwing stuff at me. I want them to actually think about what we said and reformulate it. And if they want to, if they can prove us wrong or to, you know, to really put us in our place, I want to give them a full chance to do that. If that makes sense. At the end of that week, I'm going to take all that information, all of those points of view, and I'm going to formulate it into a, a philosophical analysis of anarcho-capitalism. And I think I think it needs to be done. I know it's going to make some people angry, but I've been I've been studying this for a while now, and I see that there's just some major holes in it, um, holes that would lead to some results that they don't want to admit. But once you actually go through and outline it one by piece by piece, um, from what I've seen, unless somebody answers a question in a way that I I'm, I'll be very surprised. Um, they're basically not aware of the the implications of their belief system. That's what I think. But for sure, and I think it's also really important that we emphasize, like you know, because I don't want anybody to think anybody's getting attacked either. Is that um, you know, like the reason that conversations with Ellery are so good is because of the fact that when we have those fireside exchanges nobody's attacking anyone, at least nobody who's going to be accepted within, you know, at that fire, so to speak. You know, it's a virtual fire, but you get my point. You know, we need to create a situation where nobody's being attacked, where we're asking you questions because we have legitimate concerns and that those concerns are treated as a request for information and not as an inquisition against your point of view. You know, that's the reason that we can't, get anything done, you know, as a species is because people take shit so damn personally. I mean, that's why I told that guy, I'm like, you're being overly aggressive, you know, and I didn't get in his face and I didn't take his bait and I didn't try to yell at him or shout at him or anything, you know, because it doesn't help. You know, if he has a good point of view, then I will change my point of view. I'm not dogmatically, you know, attached to anything. Hell, I went from a, a... free market capitalist Ron Paul supporter to being a zeitgeist supporter. And they do have a lot more in common than I think most people realize, but on a financial level, my ideas totally changed. And that's because it's more important to me that I have a dialogue with people and learn about things and then come to a clear decision, absent anybody yelling at me, absent anybody trying to shame me into thinking one way or the other, you know, absent anybody shouting down anything that I say that might be a point of contention, you know, that's where real thinking and real communication takes place. And I am more loyal to that than anything else that, you know, that that I deal with in my work. You know, if at the end of the day, I have 100% completely communicated my point of view about the resource-based economy model, and the other person is 100% completely genuinely put out their views about whatever model they suggest, that to me is victory, regardless of whether or not they agree with me, as long as they leave the conversation actually understanding my point of view. That's the only thing that ever irks me, is that it's not about them having to agree with me. I don't believe in using mental force or emotional force on somebody to get them to comply with me. It's about me being fully aware of the fact that now they have absolutely reviewed the real points of view you know, that I hold, and now they're judging them. 
when they actually understand them. That's that I feel is successful communication. And I am more devoted to that happening than I am anything else. It's it's just to my opinion is absolutely a requirement for mankind to evolve. Yeah, that's not easy though. That's that's the thing. And, and the only way you can really practice that is by engaging in difficult topics. And that's why that's why difficult topics are kind of the the area that I spend a lot of time on in these things because you know if it's if it's just you know a bunch of atheists talking about religion, obviously you're not going to get to that. Everybody's just going to just be religion bashing. If it's a bunch of religious people talking about atheists, it's going to be the same thing. Um, you know, if it's just a bunch of libertarians talking about statists, same thing. you got to bring the people from the opposite side together to where you can actually start practicing. It's, it's just like sparring. I mean, you can sit there and do air karate all you want, but unless you actually practice fighting, you're not going to get good at it. You're, you're not going to have any real understanding of uh, what those th- movements actually mean when they connect to a, a physical body. Yep, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Aaron. I'll talk to you a little bit off the air if you have time. Um, and thanks again for everybody tuning in tonight. Um, you've been listening to V Radio. Please check out my website, v or v-radio.org. Check out the archives of hundreds of hours of programming like this and other you know interviews and uh, with documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists. Uh, lots of interesting content. I'm going to leave you with some parting words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.